This is the Notorious Bakersfield Podcast. I'm Robert Peterson, the host and creator of this podcast that takes a look back at some of Bakersfield's most notorious crimes, events, and characters. This is part two of The Corporation. If you haven't already listened to part one, I highly recommend doing so. On the evening of May 21st, 1988, Brian Dixon was busy at work. Dixon managed the Domino's Pizza franchise that operated in the town and country shopping center on the corner of Stockdale Highway and Coffee Road. Dixon was in the back office doing book work. He was the only employee in the shop at the time, so he had to keep an eye on the front of the store. If he heard the door open, he'd stop what he was doing and go take care of the customer out front. Dixon was counting cash and checks for the business's bank deposit. He was surprised to hear a voice from behind him say, Don't turn around. The voice startled the young manager, and he instinctively turned around. When he did, he saw a man wearing a ski mask and pointing a gun at him. The man told Dixon to get on the floor and lay face down. His hands were taped behind his back. The masked gunman asked where the safe was and how to open the cash register. When Dixon told the gunman this, he relayed it to another person in the front of the store, someone who Dixon couldn't see and never saw. Dixon could hear the two rummaging through the till. Then everything went quiet. He waited there on the floor for a few minutes, laying still, making sure they were gone before trying to free himself. Once he broke free, Dixon called 911. This Domino's pizza robbery was the first domino to fall. This $300 heist led to the unraveling of a Bakersfield crime ring that operated for multiple years. This is The Corporation, Part 2. As I covered in Part 1, the organized crime ring that called themselves The Corporation was responsible for numerous crimes throughout Bakersfield. Crimes that included robbery, armed robbery, burglary, and even murder. In part one, I covered the 1983 bludgeoning death of Charles DePriest, a 29-year-old unemployed welder. At the time of his death, he was under investigation for selling narcotics. That's how he appeared on the radar of the corporation's ringleader, Kenneth Lawrence Mount. Mount was a reserve Bakersfield police officer. In his capacity as a reserve officer, Mount learned from his law enforcement colleagues that DePriest was suspected of dealing drugs. And it was believed that DePriest kept large quantities of drugs and cash at his house. Mount and two other members of the corporation robbed a priest. During the course of that robbery, they killed him. 
The priest murder was the first the corporation committed. This second part will cover the other two murders the corporation was prosecuted for. The priest was murdered December 11, 1983. The next murder attributed to the corporation occurred exactly two years later, on December 11, 1985. Don't let this two-year gap between killings fool you. The corporation was busy planning and committing other crimes. They just happened to not murder anyone while pulling off those jobs. Bill DeStefani was the oldest son of a Kern County pioneering farming family. When hard times forced his father to sell the family's dairy farm, he and his three brothers formed their own farming partnership. DeStefani was described by family members as having a gruff exterior, but inside was a heart of gold. They said he was self-confident and independent, a man who didn't need to be propped up by anyone. DeStefani and his wife, Jewel, didn't have any children of their own, but they acted as second parents to their nieces and nephews. In 1983, DeStefani was widowed when his wife of 35 years passed away. Bill DeStefani became a target of the corporation in the summer of 1985. An associate of the crime ring had heard that DeStefani kept a large sum of cash and valuables in a safe located in the garage of his Quellwood residence. Just as they did with Charles DePriest, the corporation did their homework. They monitored his comings and goings from this residence. In order to determine if DeStefani's home was equipped with a burglar alarm, they decided to find out. The corporation launched a reconnaissance mission. One afternoon, when DeStefani wasn't home, they dropped off a cohort around the corner from his house. This member of the corporation walked to the house and attempted to pry open a window. Not to break in, but to just see if there was a security system. And when an alarm sounded, that removed any question. Using a walkie-talkie, the man doing this mission radioed the accomplices to come pick him up. Since the targeted residence had an alarm system, this left the corporation with only one option. They'd have to carry out this crime while DeStefani was home. By this time, Robert Scroggins was out of state. Since Scroggins was the prosecution's cooperating witness, not a lot of information is known about this particular crime because evidently Scroggins didn't participate in this crime. What is known is that on December 11, 1985, the two-year anniversary of Charles DePriest's robbery and homicide, Bill DeStefani was murdered. His body was discovered in his garage with a bullet wound to his head. His car was missing but was eventually found a few blocks away. The investigation determined there was some missing jewelry, but there was something that perplexed police. Bill DeStefani had 
$1,400 cash in his pants pocket. If Bill DeStephanie's homicide was the result of a robbery, could those responsible have missed that wad of cash? Bill DeStephanie was survived by his mother, two brothers, two nephews, and four nieces. Mr. DeStephanie's murder was the second one carried out by the corporation. That was December 11, 1985. The next murder, the third one attributed to the corporation, took place almost exactly a year later, December 7, 1986. Harry Bannister owned Rainbow Amusements. His company was a one-man business that provided coin-operated machines to bars and restaurants. Jukeboxes, gumball machines, pool tables, video games, those types of things. He'd split with his customer, the bar and restaurant owners, 50-50, whatever the machines took in. Bannister had friendly relationships with his customers, but he wasn't particularly close to anyone outside of work. They said he was somewhat of a recluse who spent little money on himself. The tall, thin man dressed modestly, drove junker pickups, and lived in a small apartment in downtown Bakersfield. Not many people knew about his personal life, but he was divorced and had a daughter. He also had a sister who lived in a rest home that he'd visit daily, and he paid for her care. If a customer of his was experiencing a financial hardship, they knew they could count on Harry Bannister for a loan. He'd just keep the customers half of the money his machines took in until the loan was paid back in full, and he'd never charge interest. Being a product of the Great Depression, Bannister didn't trust banks. His business was all cash, so he carried a lot of it on him, or stored it in a safe at his warehouse on East 21st Street, or a storage shed he rented on 16th Street, located near the Bakersfield Police Department. He ate at the same downtown Bakersfield restaurants over and over, rarely deviating from his routine. Being a creature of habit who carried large amounts of cash, Bannister was an easy and inviting target for a criminal. The corporation met at Farmer John Pancake House on Union Avenue to discuss how they'd pull off the Harry Bannister heist. At this point in their existence, another individual had joined the corporation. His name was James Ludlow. So it was Kenneth Lawrence Mount, the reserve Bakersfield police officer, Tommy Porter, Robert Scroggins, and this new member, James Ludlow. Remember, Bannister was a creature of habit. His end-of-day routine included going to a donut shop on the corner of Union Avenue and Brundage Lane. Every evening before going to his warehouse, he'd stop off to get a donut and coffee. Then the independent businessman would drive to his warehouse on East 21st Street, where he'd take his money from the day and secure it in a safe. Like clockwork, Harry Bannister did exactly that on December 7, 1986. But this time when he left the donut shop, Kenneth Mount and another corporation associate tailed him. They followed Harry Bannister to his warehouse. 
When Harry Bannister arrived at his business, he pulled into the driveway. Then, when he got out of his pickup, two members of the corporation were laying in wait. They tackled the aging businessman to the ground. They bound his wrists and ankles with tape, then threw a hood over his head. The car that followed Bannister from the donut shop pulled into the driveway. The men loaded their captive into the car, laid him across the back seat, and sat on him. The four members of the corporation spirited their prisoner to the outskirts of Bakersfield. They drove along a dirt road off of Callaway Drive. When they got to a canal bridge, they stopped the car. They pulled Bannister out of the back seat. While the men questioned him about where he kept his money, they were simultaneously assaulting him, punching and kicking the bound man. Bannister gave them everything they wanted, locations of his safes, including the combination. He even handed over the keys to his 16th Street storage unit. The weakened and beaten man was then ordered to move to the edge of the canal bridge. While he was standing on the bridge, Tommy Porter took a knife and slit his throat before shoving him into the water below. Harry Bannister was 68 years old. He was survived by his former wife, daughter, and sister. After killing Harry Bannister, the four men set out to find his valuables. They drove back into Bakersfield. They first went back to the 21st Street warehouse, then the storage unit on 16th Street. The corporation's take for this job amounted to about $35,000 in cash and some firearms. The corporation claimed many victims, possibly a dozen or more, during their multi-year operation. Sadly, three of those victims lost their lives. Charles DePriest, Bill DeStefani, and Harry Bannister. Their homicides probably would have gone unsolved if it hadn't been for that last crime, the Domino's Pizza robbery in the town and country shopping center in 1988. A few days after pulling off that robbery, Robert Scroggins' girlfriend turned him in. I don't know why, but she turned him in. And he was arrested by the Bakersfield police. While being questioned by detectives about that robbery, Scroggins told them he had information regarding three unsolved murders, the homicides of DePriest, DeStefani, and Bannister. Scroggins entered into an immunity agreement with the prosecutors. After securing the agreement, Scroggins gave a full tape-recorded confession. He detailed crimes committed by himself, Kenneth Mount, Thomas Porter, and James Ludlow. Law enforcement finally had a clear understanding of these unsolved crimes and who the actors were. One of the terms of his immunity agreement was for Scroggins to meet with Kenneth Mount while wearing a wire. On June 5, 1988, Scroggins called Mount to tell him he had been arrested for the Domino's pizza robbery, but he bailed out and said they needed to meet right away. 
they needed to discuss a plan. Kenneth Mount met Robert Scroggins in a room at the Roadway Inn. The two had a long meeting where they discussed the crimes of the corporation. Scroggins was able to get Mount to implicate himself in the three murders. Mount had no idea their conversation was being monitored by Bakersfield police detectives from a neighboring room. While Kenneth Mount walked out of that motel room, he was promptly arrested by his Bakersfield police colleagues. As you'd expect, when news of this broke, it really made an impact. To make the story even more sensational was the fact that a reserve Bakersfield police officer was the mastermind of this organized crime ring. Now, keep in mind, corporations' crimes came to light in 1988. The year prior, in 1987, a Kern County deputy sheriff was convicted of killing two women. News of a reserve Bakersfield police officer being arrested on murder charges on the hills of that wasn't a good look for local law enforcement. By the way, I covered the crimes of the deputy sheriff in episode 75 of the Notorious Bakersfield podcast. It's titled Killer Cop. You can go back and listen to that story. But back to this story. A nephew of Bill DeStefani, the second murder victim, said this after the arrest, quote, I hope they get what they deserve. I hope it happens at 19th and Chester, and I'd be happy to pull the switch, unquote. All four members of the corporation eventually had their day in court. Scroggins pled guilty to the Domino's pizza robbery, and because of his cooperation, because of the immunity deal, his sentence was lighter than you'd expect. Kenneth Mount, he was convicted of first-degree murder for Harry Bannister's death. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Tommy Porter and James Ludlow were convicted of second-degree murder for Bannister's homicide. They were sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. Actually, Harry Bannister's homicide is the only one of the three that anyone was ever convicted for. Juries either deadlocked or acquitted the suspects for the other two murders. As you'd expect, there were some hard feelings among those who considered themselves members of the corporation. Why should Robert Scroggins get off with a light sentence? From what I can tell, Scroggins did serve prison time for the Domino's Pizza robbery. But he never suffered any consequences for his participation in the murders of Charles DePriest and Harry Bannister. Each of the other defendants agreed Scroggins was a major player in those crimes. The version of events I used for this story is mostly from Robert Scroggins, because that's the official version used in court. Scroggins' story is the one Kern County prosecutors used to convict the other players. The only individual I know for sure about is Kenneth Lawrence Mount. He died from a heart attack while in prison in 2006. An article in the Bakersfield Californian about his death 
stated Ludlow and Porter will, were still incarcerated. That was 2006. I recently did a search for them on the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation website, and neither one is listed. Resources used for this story, the Bakersfield, California, the Fresno Bee, the Los Angeles Times, and People of the State of California versus Kenneth Lawrence Mount. This is Robert Peterson. Thank you for listening to this episode. I'll be back next week, next Tuesday, with another Notorious Bakersfield story. Stay safe, stay out of trouble. Don't become a future episode of the Notorious Bakersfield podcast.